We're happy to have you with us this evening and want you to enjoy every minute of your stay here. Listen to me. Please listen. If you don't, if you won't, if you fail to understand, then the same incredible terror that's menacing me will strike at you! Are you ready to enter this sci-fi double feature drive-in? On every first and third Thursday of the month, your host, the conspiracy-loving Elisa, and yours truly, Jarrett the Kaiju Man Waglin, pick a very radioactive, a very out-of-this-world double feature, and discuss two movies featuring giant monsters, little monsters, genetic abominations, robots gone awry, aliens attacking Earth, and everything in between. Then join us in the underground on every second and fourth Thursday as we look to shed some light on the unknown of this world and worlds beyond with our series the drive-in underground classified case files are presented featuring ufos cryptids and everything unknown so join us and don't forget to stop by our snack bar first Candy! Yay! <laughs> the excitement is real. I never know what to say. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Excitement's good enough. Yay! Your weekly podcast bringing you sweet treats of unknown pleasures from the disorderly world of music. <laughs> your your references in these openings are just fantastic. I know. Days. I can't stop. Won't stop. Can't stop. Won't stop. Nope. Not doing it. <laughs> And tonight we are really hitting the nail on the head with our choice of beer. Because tonight we're going with Troy Division by our favorite local brewers, Rare Form. This is like number three for Rare Form. Dose. Oh, number two? Number dose, yeah. Mm. Well, We've done two other beers because A, they're really good, but B, they tend to have really good thematic beers. (laughs) Yeah, they do. So it's like, all right, let's go with it. Let's, Let's keep on rolling. And it's pretty easy for us to get it, so... Yeah, I mean, it's we're pretty much there like every week. So. It's literally right down the street. So. Yeah, it works out <laughs> real good. It's a very tasty India pale ale. Good summer treat. It's really good. Yeah. I don't like IPAs. So. I think, you know what? I don't think we get to say that anymore. I think I we're kind of liking IPAs. We kind of forced ourselves to yeah, like we them. You drink when, enough of them. When you have a podcast that requires you to drink thematic beers... You kind of go with whatever you can find. So Nine times out of ten, it's, it's an, an IPA. IPA. Yeah. Because, because everyone is fucking loving IPAs right now. Bro, which- I put like five million hops in this. It's like 95 IBUs. It's real hazy. It's so, it's such a dark, cloudy, get hoppy. Got that, that lactose. IPA. That lactose. <laughs> that lactose Sorry, IPA. please stop saying there's lactose in the beer because it makes me want to barf. Does this make you think it's like... Not it dairy, just, it's just something All I wrong. can picture is just a cow squirting milk straight into a <laughs> beer bottle. And <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's so gross. That's the worst. Nobody wants that. Yeah, no. And I know that's not what you're doing, but it's gross. And then, and on top of that, the lactose makes it hazy. So you see like this thick looking pale ale and I'm like, cow just squirted a cheat in the lab. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> it's, it's, I don't know what I, just happened. I don't, I don't know oh if I want to drink that. I don't want it. I don't know if I want. <laughs> Fucking milk is gross. Milk is disgusting. And it's 95 degrees right now, so milk is a bad milk choice. Milk is a bad choice. All right. PSA for this episode. Milk is a bad <laughs> it choice. It really is. We are literally covered in fleece blankets oh, in a closed off room with no air conditioning. So you're welcome. Yeah. I mean, there's a ceiling fan. I can't feel it. I'm sorry. <laughs> that blanket's wafting in it, though. That blanket's feeling well, it. I'm glad the blanket's cool. <laughs> Because <laughs> I'm not. Cool. Right. Anyway, so what are we talking about? Today, we are talking about the band Joy Division. There we go. Yeah, that we got sense. there. I mean, you, you probably guessed it by now. If I if I didn't reference it enough by now, we're talking about fucking yeah. Joy Division. Yeah. And full disclosure before I get in anything, this is a band that I knew diddly about. Oh, I, I still no diddly about. You are going to learn so much. I am. Because I fucking did. Oh my god. It was one of those, wow, I never knew any of this. It's gonna be great. It made me realize I only knew like two of their songs and I've been listening to their discography a lot and while it makes me a little sad, it also is very good. Mm-hmm. Makes me really appreciate it. Yeah. So I'm, that was nice. I'm pretty sure I only knew a couple. Right. Like I knew, songs. Yeah, I knew Disorder. I knew Love Will Tear Us Apart, but... Now I know more, so that's good. This is a band that had a short run, but that didn't make it any less influential. A true working man's band, these guys started off as fans and ran through the ringer to become successful musicians in their own right. It's a story about hard work paying off, but also tragedy. So buckle up. Buckaroos. Yeah. And before I get totally into it, I do want to credit the book that I used for research called Unknown Pleasures Inside Joy Division by Peter Hook, who is the bassist of Joy Division. That is a foreboding-looking book. It's actually not it too bad. It has literal black pages. No, it's only that, the this, edges. This is a book that screams, you're going to cry. <laughs> it, it, I, I did. <laughs> God damn it, I kind of did. I got pretty teary-eyed at the hey, end. Hey, do you ever want to read a book that makes you curl up into the fetal position and <laughs> cry yourself to sleep? We've got read, the book for you. <laughs> read Unknown Pleasures. You're going to want to die. You you might, though. Actually, it's an awesome book. I'm probably going to buy it myself. I only rented it from the library. Rented it? Borrowed it? I don't know. I got it from the rent library. Rented it. Rent it. And, uh, yeah, it's it's very good. Uh, Peter, the, his writing style is very conversational. It's easy to follow. And he has so much English-British slang in it. It's, I love that. You're you should fucking read this. English slang. You would is love the this. Best slang in the world. Cuz all it is is fucking knackers and tossers yeah. and twats and cunts. And that's like dated, but it's still fun. Oh, it's so fun. Like I really after reading this I really want to meet Peter Hook. And you're like, "Can we be friends? You seem like a cool guy." Uh and just to throw it out there, I didn't read it, but a book that he referenced occasionally as well is called Touching from a Distance by Deborah Curtis who was Ian Curtis's wife, Ian Curtis being the lead singer. So she also wrote a book, and he said that it it's a pretty good book to read because she had a completely different side of this story. So, and something that he says a couple times in the book is, I can't be trusted. So while I, the information I got was pretty much from the book, it's from the book, and he even says sometimes he remembered things wrong. So, you know, don't come for us if there's something... Memory is, is faulty a lot of the time. So 
Especially if, I don't know if this is true of them or anything, especially right. if drugs or alcohol are involved. Oh, yeah, alcohol, definitely. Mm, you're not going to remember they, they didn't seem to be too much of a druggy band, more of an alcohol band. Oh. So. I always kind of like the alcohol bands. Yeah, I think I, I can hang better with an alcohol band than a drug band. I don't relate band. too much to the druggy band, but it's the alcohol. It's, it's the Fleetwood Mac kind of, like, But, like, you know there band. was a lot of cocaine, right? Yeah, but... They were real, like, their their thing was the alcohol. Like, Mick Fleetwood and John McVie, their thing was alcohol. That's what bonded them together. Yeah. That's why they're sure. so, That's why they're friends. That's why they're friends. I mean, that's why I'm friends with pretty much everyone. Wait a minute. I'd fucking hate you if I didn't have alcohol. Oh, my alcohol. God, a bite of alcohol. This podcast would not be happening. <laughs> let me tell you. Well, all right. Let me get into it. So, this story begins in June 1976. When the Sex Pistols were playing a gig at Manchester Lesser Free Hall, three of those in attendance were Peter Hook, Bernard Sumner, and Terry Mason. This was a pretty new band. Most didn't know what to expect from the Pistols, except their shows pretty much ended in a fight every time. What the guys saw blew them away. These were just regular Joes, nothing glamorous, no fabricated wall created over their actual personalities. And they were just singing about things that no one else would even touch. I am an anarchist, God save the queen, except not really. Yeah. That's that's the working title. <laughs> but yeah, so this is a band that they had never seen before. Before it's like Led Zeppelin and all these gods of rock that you can't touch. And the Sex Pistols yeah. are like, we don't give a fuck. These like bluesy rock and roll guys. Yeah. And Sex Pistols were very much not that. No. So immediately they were idolized by these guys. So inspired by this, they decided to start a band of their own. Bernard, who is known as Barney, so I'm going to call him Barney. Wait, were they friends before this? Yes. They were already The three of them were already friends. Barney had recently gotten a guitar anyway and was already learning to play. So Peter went with the bass and that left Terry on drums. A mutual friend from school named Martin Gresky. Gresty? Whatever. It doesn't matter because he was a non-committal vocalist and left relatively soon after because he found himself a well-paying job and was like, yeah, that's cute, guys. I'm not playing. Bye. Boring. Boring. I don't want to be the best. Get out of here. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> tosser. <laughs> so much tosser. Toss down out of here, you it. tosser. I love it. That's not how they say it. No. No. That's okay. <laughs> the guys were definitely novices teaching themselves to play their respective instruments Peter bought a bass and some lesson books. And the interesting thing is how between self-teaching and buying a garbage bass, it helped him to develop a unique sound that is all his own. Sometimes you just got to do that. If yeah. you have a piece of crap instrument you and you don't have the money to figure out how to get a, a better one, sometimes you just have to figure out how to like make a unique sound with what you have exactly it's kind of like if you're a photographer and you don't have the money to get some fancy ass like three thousand dollar camera and all you have is like a fucking cool pics or whatever (laughs) cool pics hey i had a cool pics and i took good pictures on that camera (laughs) if that's all you have then sometimes you just have to figure out how to take good pictures on that camera right or get really good at photoshop yeah you have two options if you can't you afford. You have two options if all you can afford is cool pics. Cool pics are fine. They are you fine. You learn how to Nikons are great. Yo, Nikons are... That's yeah. what we have, so... That's what I got. It's, go, it's a good choice. He never learned 
quite the right technique, Peter. So he would use three fingers instead of four when he was playing his bass. And the bass would drop out of tune if he played too many low notes. So it kind of <laughs> kept him playing higher. So between those two things, he's just developed yeah. this very interesting sound that no one else really had. I feel like there's a lot of musicians that have done the same thing. Oh, yeah. Like, not necessarily because they wanted to be cool, but kind of out of necessity yeah. because they had no other choice. Like, well, this is how this works, so... Yeah. And I know that there are good examples of this, but I cannot think of any right now. So. You know, it almost goes into podcasting where you can't afford a sound booth, so you cover yourself in blankets. Yeah. It's like that. It's kind of like that. It's the same exact thing. We're basically Joy Division. <laughs> You're welcome, internet. <laughs> Terry, however, never really managed to get any good at the drums, so they made him their manager. But that didn't work out great because he wasn't good at that either and had no drive. What are you good at? Oh, just wait. Throughout the career of Joy Division, in fact, Terry ended up trying on a lot of hats and he didn't take them off because he wanted to, but because he was terrible at everything. Come on, Terry. He tried to Jesus do their sound, Christ. and he was bad at that. The only thing he ever did pretty well was be a roadie, so he was pretty much their roadie. The only thing that is coming to mind right now is Jerry from Parks and Rec. Oh my god, he was toting Terry! <laughs> oh my god, he's their Jerry! Like, he's just there for them to make fun of. And that's of. the only thing he's good at. He's good, but he was... I, I'll give him credit for this. Like, he stuck with them through the whole thing. I mean... And, like, that's a fucking friend right there. It was like, I'm shit at everything. I'm yeah. never going to get the glamour Which is exactly what stage. Jerry did. He he's stayed. Oh. Even after he retired. So, I don't know what his last name is, but he is... Mason. Ter he's, he's Terry Gergich. Oh, Terry Gergich. That was his name for a little bit, too, in the show. <laughs> it, it works out. This all works. The guys continued to attend punk shows, and they kept running into this guy who would wear a coat with the word hate on the back in big, bold letters. They finally began to chat with each other and got on really well. And from there, a friendship with Ian <laughs> Curtis was born. <laughs> what? What? <laughs> Yeah, pick out the guy with hate scrolled across his jacket. <laughs> In the punk days, that was fucking cool. Oh, you wouldn't think that that's the one you would befriend. But yeah, it's it's funny that somebody like Ian, from what I've read, had a big, bold hate statement on yeah. his shirt or his jacket. Because when you read about him, he was a pretty quiet, nice guy. Mm-hmm. It's the punk thing to do. I guess. You want somebody to notice you. You have a mohawk and you have the word hate on your jacket. That's pretty punk. It's pretty well, punk Give right it to there. him. Fine. That's pretty punk. <laughs> That's it. As was the thing at the time, everyone was being inspired by big time music acts. After seeing Iggy Pop and the Damned at a festival in France, Ian came back and started his own band. Peter and Barney thought maybe they could work their two groups into joining. Because... Both had something the other lacked, except a guitarist. Both bands had a guitarist. And the parent rule of punk is that you can't have more than one guitar, one bass, one drummer, and one singer. So for a little bit, both bands just kind of continued to try to find somebody to fill those spots. I mean, if you had two guitarists, then, you know, you may as well, well kill yourself. You may as well be another fucking... English band full of white dudes playing shitty blues rock. Yeah, and that's pretty much how they saw it. Yeah. So they're like, that's not punk. We're not doing it. In Peter's book, 
He claims there are two stories of how Ian ended up joining them. One is that he answered an ad at Virgin Records store. But the one he remembers is that after both Ian's drummer and guitarist left for other opportunities, they ended up asking him to sing and he said yes. That sounds Irre- more plausible. Irregardless. <laughs> he ended up in He the ended band. up being their fucking singer. All yeah, right. that's pretty much how he's like, I think we just fucking asked him and he joined. But like, whatever. It doesn't matter. Because they did know each other before he joined the band. Right. So that so makes it doesn't, sense to me. And it doesn't really make sense that he would answer an ad and not know that it was them. Oh, guys, I answered your ad. Like, dude, you knew we needed a singer. <laughs> you fucking know fuck? us. You know who we are. <laughs> they had constant troubles trying to find a drummer, though. Most of them were... That is the same story with every single band. It's either a drummer or a bassist. Like, there needs to be more drummers in this world. Right. More drummers. Yeah. Hashtag more drummers. Hashtag more drummers. Hashtag more bassist. Hashtag nobody cares that you can play the guitar in the quad, boys. It's not impressing anyone. I don't care how much poon you think you're getting. Go play frisbee and shut the fuck up. Shut the fuck up, guitar boy. <laughs> Your dreads are ugly. Most of the guys that they were picking up were either total flakes, lacked any real talent, or just didn't mesh well with the group. It would take them about a year to finally find their drummer with Stephen Morris. He answered an ad that they put up in a music shop, because that's what you did. And he actually just happened to have attended school with Peter. So it was really easy for them to just click off the bat right away. And from then on, they could just focus on important things, like being a band. A real one. Yeah, and making music. Mm. Finding a name for themselves wasn't easy for Joy Division. And I mean in finding an actual name for the band. In the very early days, they were called the Stiff Kittens after the band The Buzzcocks suggested it. They hated the name and they only went by it for one gig because they needed a name and a gig that they were playing. And they still didn't have one. So they were friends with The Buzzcocks? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah. The Buzzcocks right. were definitely influential to them and they end up touring with them a bit too. Huh. Yeah. Oh, well, cool. Good for it you. It was a big influential band on Nirvana also. Nice. Along good- with the Melvins. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, Melvins. After that, though, they chose to go by the name Warsaw. Being fans of David Bowie, especially Ian, and really enjoying the album Low, they decided to have their name reference the song Warzawa. However, around the same time, a London punk band that managed to get a little more notoriety a little bit quicker was called Warsaw Pact. So in order to avoid confusion, they decided they need to change their name. Well, at least they did it independently and they didn't, like, Warsaw Pact wasn't like, oh, that's our name. We're going to sue you. Exactly. Yeah. It wasn't anything like that because they were, Warsaw Pact was still fairly unknown at the time, but Um, they were just getting more gigs then. Still unknown? Yeah. I mean, I was trying to, maybe. (laughs) Just being a little nice. I was being nice. But I'm not nice, so. That's true. One of still, us, one still of us has to be bad cop. I'm I'm totally the bad cop. You're real good you are it. the way too nice bad cop. Damn. Or way too nice good cop. <laughs> no, can I just be way too nice bad cop? Because I can be bitchy sometimes. You do the uh, real harsh compliment sandwich. <laughs> like, you say something real nice and they something, say something horribly bad. I'm like, oh man, like these... 
these verses, they sound beautiful. You did a great job. However, the drummer, what the fuck are you doing? You dropped your sticks halfway through. Are you drunk? But you fucking you jerking to- off behind the, the drum set. What the fuck are you doing back there? What are you there? doing, you piece of shit? But you are all you, managed to are you drumsticks just flying out of your hands with all the cum you got on them? Come oh on. Oh my God. You're a real bad cop. Can I be real bad cop? You're a real bad cop. I don't even know what the fuck kind of cop I but am. But you know what? You're... That beat you got on that one is really good. <laughs> but you guys came back, you brought it, you ended it strong, and that's what really matters. And you matters. know what? I like your shirt. <laughs> <laughs> you got cum all over it. But I like your shirt. You did. It looked real good before you started jerking off at the drum set. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> anyway. Damn. All right. Anyway. Solid gold. Gold hits right there. <laughs> Ian was really into this book called House of Dolls, which is a novella about the sexual slave groups in Nazi concentration camps known as Joy Divisions. And that's where they got the name from. Really? Yeah. Wow, that's so dark. Yeah. Didn't know that. Uh, no. Did not do <laughs> Coming back into it. Oh. Didn't know that. Oh, that's so not yeah. joyful. No, it is not. Uh, No, right. The name change occurred during the creation of their first EP, An Ideal for Living. Which, arguably, that name is not great either. (laughs) Barney already did graphics for a living, so he went right ahead and created the sleeve art. And he came up with the image of a Hitler youth banging on a drum with some German-looking script for the font. Oh, I'm sure that went over well. Oh, it did. It went over so... People loved it. It was did a it? hit. Except and they, became, they didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler, it didn't. Okay. All right. It's 2018 right now, right? Mm-hmm. And we're in a heated political climate right now. I get it. The word Nazi is still thrown around on the regular. And there have been a lot of comparisons to World War II era Germany. And, you know, that's a thing right now. But take a moment... And bring yourself back to the year 1977, only 32 years after the war ended. It's still fresh on everybody's mind. Bomb craters behind the home you grew up in. Your parents telling you about air raids. Needless to say, a band coming out with Nazi imagery raised the alarm for and, a lot of people. And we're not talking uh, 1977 America. We're talking 1977 England. Bingo. Where World War II was very much... On everybody's mind because they were getting bombed. Right. Because they were so close to, like, the very epicenter of World War II. Europe was in absolute turmoil. Right. At that point. And they were still feeling it. Oh. In the definitely. 70s. And, you know, um, London was destroyed. Mm-hmm. They were still rebuilding. And they were still rebuilding at this point. I mean, it was a whole lot different than it was back in the early 40s. But... Mm-hmm. Uh, it's still, you, just walking around any town, I'm sure, in England, you could still get reminders. Oh, yeah. Of World War Two. So, and it's not like nobody was really thinking about the Nazis yeah, anymore. Exactly. <laughs> and, and Devil's Argument could be made that, you know, these are baby boomer guys, and they see so much imagery, they're just kind of slapping it on there, because it's fresh in their minds yeah. as well. And probably a lot of their relatives and their friends' parents and stuff oh, were yeah. probably in the war. Oh, exactly. And, or had lived, like I said, like, lived through air raids, yeah. lived through bomb threats, just all this crazy shit. 
to the guys in the band, they said it was no more than just like, you know, they're just some youngins trying to be shocking and punk. And they had absolutely no interest in the ideology and that they were just going for an artsy and thought-provoking kind of look. But today they admit to just being naive and just trying to upset old people. Yeah. But. But they, they were teenagers, right? I mean, that's what teenagers oh, well, are supposed were to Well, they were early 20s, which okay. I would still definitely make an argument for early 20s. And I was thinking about it, too, when I was reading this. Remember when Columbine happened? Mm-hmm. How many of your friends ran out and bought trench coats after it happened? None of them. Oh, a lot of my friends did. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like, a lot of people I knew wore trench coats because you want to be shocking and provocative. And because you're young and you're stupid. And that's how you think you're going to show off to the man. So for these guys... See, maybe that's the big difference between big school versus little school. Just a small town girl. <laughs> no one's wearing trench coats. <laughs> no, they were not. Because no. we were all like... Our school could be next. Oh, honey. <laughs> and I, we're like, our school could be next. And it could be me. Yeah. <laughs> Let it be me. But it's not like, see how edgy I am? And everyone's going to not want to talk to me because I'm so edgy and distant. Like, I don't know. That's what we were like. That's why we wore Jenkos and dark makeup. And yeah. my friends wore trench coats and I had spiky hair. I want to say maybe like a couple years afterwards, some people were like, it's, it's okay to bring the trench coat out, right? Oh, oh no. We were definitely like, that fall, trench coat was in. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you live here now. Think about it. <laughs> but again, I think it's just when you're young, sometimes you just want to be that provocative, like edgy. And you think about what's the fucking most terrible thing? Oh, Nazis? Yeah. Yeah, let's fucking throw this out there. I don't think they meant to pile it on the way they did. I think art book-wise they did, but I think name-wise they didn't. Ian is definitely this very well-read, intelligent, philosophical dude who probably was going for an underhanded thing with calling it Joy Division. just wanted to make the the older generation clutch their pearls a little yes, bit. exactly. And also, it's kind of an obscure enough reference that I don't think a whole lot of people knew what they were referencing. Right. Maybe. It's a novella that arguably not everybody read. I mean, maybe back then they did, but I had never heard of House... I've heard of House of Dolls, but I had no idea what it was about. Yeah. So, once we got into high school, how much Holocaust novels did you read? How many? Oh, there Holocaust. was Mouse. Yeah. We read um, Night... Um, there's another one. We saw Schindler's List, like... Oh, yeah, I watched Schindler's List in eighth grade. Yeah, I just remember... Which history arguably, was all about World War II and the Holocaust. Arguably, you should probably not show your students Schindler's List in eighth grade, no. but definitely did. Oh, no. We watched it in tenth grade, at least. Yeah, eighth grade <laughs> is probably not. A little, like a scooch too young. It's a little bit too little, young. Just a little older. Yeah. Anyway. School. It's great. Stay in it. Stay. <laughs> School. Stay in it. <laughs> oh, we're going to make that a jingle. Band is finally all together, except for a manager. So they decided the fairest way to run things is if everyone took turns at being the manager. Wait, what happened to Terry? <laughs> oh, no, honey. No, Terry just lugs their shit around. Oh, yeah. He's a roadie at this point, yeah. isn't he? Yeah. Okay, he's really good at it, though. That's his niche. Well, that's good. You know what? Everybody has a calling. I mean, at least they have their own roadie. Yeah, seriously. Not a lot of bands have They might not have roadies. a manager, but they have a fucking roadie. 
A reliable one at they that. They have an equipment bitch, and that's what matters. It kind of is, though. Well, you may have surmised that all of them switching around managerial duties, not the best idea. Yeah, no. But one of the times that Ian had managed, he decided that it was time for them to make their own record, which would eventually become an ideal for living their EP. So he took out a bank loan for 1,000 pounds. He lied to the bank and told them it was to buy furniture for his new home. He also didn't tell his wife Debbie about it for a little bit either. Kind of waited on that one. Oh. I am, I am, I would be more upset about him not telling his wife than lying to the bank. Yeah, yeah, that was, Debbie was not quite happy about that either. Actually, the guys were all pretty surprised when they met Ian, because again, they're like 20, 21 maybe. And he's married? And he's married. Huh. They got married pretty young, so. I'll get more into that later, though. The plan was to get studio time, press 1,000 records, and distribute everything on their own. And this way, they wouldn't have to deal with the record company meddling, and honestly, they just had a better chance getting it done themselves instead of waiting for someone else to discover them. And they worked so well together, going into the studio with material ready to go, that process took a day for them to just record, get it done. They were ready to just shoot it right out. Except... So these kids are novices. They've never done this before and they're trying to do it all themselves. And I mean, how many times do you see something on Pinterest and you're like, I'm going to do this and you do it and you're like, oh God, oh God, what is this? (laughs) Hashtag nailed it. Get ready for a nailed it moment. So this is their first time in a studio setting. Their first time working with a producer. Their first time creating anything on a record. First time ever seeing like a soundboard. Yeah. Probably. Probably. Or a mixer. Exactly. Or anything like this, that. They may have seen, like, mixers and soundboards just in passing, but, yeah, their first time really working with this yeah. shit. Yeah. So when they got the record and tossed it on the player to have a listen, they were horrified to discover it sounded like absolute shite. <laughs> I went British with that one, because that's how bad it was. No dynamics were to be found. In fact, it all sounded quiet, distant, and muddled. Super confused, the guys had no idea. Like, why does it sound so fucking terrible? We don't sound this terrible. Why does this sound terrible? They made a fatal error when they decided to put four songs onto a seven-inch record. There wasn't enough room. So the grooves were too narrow, making the sound cheap and soft. Yeah. Two sides, man. They use both sides, but for a seven-inch, four songs is too many. Yeah, no. You can only have two on a seven-inch, right? Right. On each side? Yeah, exactly. Their two options would have either been to just put two tracks on the record, or if they wanted four, they would have had to do it on a Mm 12-inch. So that was what they should have done. Nobody told them that, though. And when Peter got this information from the producer they worked with, he fucking got into it with him. He's yelling at him for not explaining this. And when they told him what they were going to do, and he just said, whatever, you did what you did. I did what I did. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't care. I got paid. Damage was done. And now the lads were forced to go out and try to sell this garbage album. <laughs> They would go to clubs and other venues. They'd ask DJs to put the record on. And one time it literally cleared the floor because it sounded so bad. Oh, my God. They thought, well, maybe it just sounds bad on our stereos. Maybe if we play it at a club and they play at the club and they're like, oh, no. (laughs) They only sold maybe a handful of records and it was mostly to people who didn't realize they were buying something that was so low in quality. Right. Things weren't looking great, but they kept going. In his book, Peter often mentions how they would constantly wonder how one band was getting better gigs than them. 
despite their acts being clearly inferior. That really seemed to be a driving force for them, believing that they knew they were better than half the bands out in the punk scene right now, and they just needed everyone else to see that. And they would take any and every gig that they were ever offered, and they are constantly working on it. It's kind of like um, when you don't like this one particular person. Right. Because they're just a fucking horrible human being. <laughs> but for some reason, everybody else in the room fucking loves them. Like, oh, man. And you're just it's standing. Chad. Yeah, and you're just like, no, Ch- Chad's awful. Am I taking crazy advice? Am I going insane? Like, this person is horrible. Right. They definitely had that Mugatu moment of, we are way better than most of these bands. Yeah. Why aren't you seeing it? Yeah. And I mean, arguably, they weren't wrong because how many of these bands that they were with made it as big as Joy Division? Right. Exactly. So they weren't wrong. Ian regularly visited the promotional offices at RCA Records and managed to make friends with the manager who wasn't really into their sound, but apparently his son was. And this was enough to get them an offer to do a cover of the NF Porter song, Keep On, Keep It On. They also worked on an album with RCA, recording about a dozen songs, and they were all super overproduced and not at all what they wanted to be known for, and they hated everything that they did with RCA. It was almost like a deal with the devil. RC is like, well, hey, why don't we do this single for this record we're putting out? Uh, We'll we'll put some songs together and see if maybe we can make a record. Uh Uh-huh. Because I guess that's something that record companies will just do. Is they're like, well, come in and record and we'll see what we can do with it. But they hated everything that RCA was doing with them because they were polishing up. They were putting pretty bows on it. They were just giving them a sound that they weren't, they didn't want to be associated with. I mean, arguably, the phrase keep on keeping on is one of the worst phrases ever in existence so i i feel it it's it's right next to keep on (laughs) trucking i'm gonna make you a post which just says keep on keep it on i'm gonna put it through a shredder i'm excited about (laughs) that fuck that i hate it (laughs) keep on keeping on no (laughs) what is that means nothing there's a cat on a surfboard it just says keep on keeping on and you're like what is this this is garbage i don't understand any of this what does this even mean why is there a cat on a surfboard cats hate water (laughs) at least give me the poster with a cat hanging from a tree that says hang in in there there. (laughs) fuck well this album never saw the light of day although peter says that it was apparently bootlegged i've never heard it but it's not like i'm a fucking aficionado of joy division anyway you're not you're not I'm not. As, Are you not? As I develop, as I mentioned before, <laughs> no fucking idea about any of this shit. This is all news to me. Yeah. Yeah. Despite that, though, what eventually came of the record were some pretty sick riffs, great composition ideas, and all these things that would end up being used on their debut album down the road. So it wasn't a total loss. Good for them. In April 78, Joy Division took part in a battle of the bands and got the attention of one Rob Gretton. He was so impressed that he offered to be their manager. This is like the, this is back when Battle of the Bands actually was still relevant. And did something and for you. And did something for you. Well, now, now if you do a Battle of the Bands, it's, it's either like really awful, like hard rock new metal bands. Yeah. Or it's like, ugh. Once in a blue moon, you might get something, but overall, I mean, something like this is rare. Yeah, I very, very rarely see any Battle of the Bands anymore, and when it is, 
All I can think of is like, really? Oh, You're still doing honey. that? What's well, fun in like high school, college? Oh, honey. Oh, honey. Oh. Well, and the story behind that battle of the bands too really sucked for Joy Division because they performed last. They couldn't get higher up on the fucking roster. Oh, you don't want to perform last at a battle of the bands. Right. So the fact that this guy even noticed them. And liked them enough to ask to be their manager. That's pretty big. That's, they must have been. They must have did a really good job. Yeah. So again, so they're better than all these fucking bands. Why doesn't <laughs> anyone else see this? Am I taking crazy pills? Yeah. So. We are Mugatu in this episode. Yeah, and they were too the whole yeah. time. <laughs> this like, whole the time, it's just fucking Mugatu yeah, <laughs> holding like, a dog. Oh. Well. As manager, Rob's first order of business was getting an Ideal for Living remastered onto a 12-inch and getting rid of all the Nazi artwork. <laughs> good job. <laughs> Somebody was like, you gotta get rid of this Choices. shit. Choices. I believe he you said, quote, one. you gotta get rid of all this Nazi shit. <laughs> he knows what he's talking about. He does. Good. It was then replaced with a black and white picture of scaffolding. So if you find an Ideal for Living EP... It's going to have that picture on it. And if it has the Nazi imagery on it. It's bootleg. Is it or a bootleg? Well, or it's, it's an if original. It, if it's a 12 inch with the Nazi picture, it's a bootleg. bootleg. It's a 7 inch with the Nazi picture. It's an original. And you just stuffed your savings account. Also, great part out of all of this was that after they remastered all this, they sold a fuck ton of copies and Ian was able to pay off that loan and got Debbie off his fucking back. <laughs> So thanks, Debbie. She's, actually, no, I. Debbie is a fucking. I think Debbie went through the fucking ringer in this. She is a saint, and I like her. Again, I'll get to that. <laughs> he also got the master tapes from RCA Records for a grand, and that was going to also get them more regular gigs. He got them gigs with promoters. He got them gigs that got them noticed. So finally. It landed them on a Grenada TV show, So It Goes. And from there, a relationship developed with Tony Wilson. Not only did Tony host the show, but he also was a part of Factory Records. And he asked the guys to contribute two tracks to the compilation album, A Factory Sample. And from there, they joined the Factory roster performers, getting them even more gigs. Wait, so this TV show aired in Grenada? No, it was just called it's like, it was a TV channel, I think, called... I guess they call it Granada TV. Oh, okay. Is they British? I don't know. I just know Granada because that's where Mike went to school. But, yeah, I think it's just a channel, Granada TV. Oh, all I, right. I, like, didn't give enough of a fuck to look that up. Yeah. <laughs> like, out of everything in this story, I was like, I could look that up, but I'm not gonna. I mean... Come I, for me. I don't know British television. <laughs> I know that they used to have, like, four channels until about, like, 2012. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> Sorry, Britain. No, no, Ireland. European TV is weird. I don't get it. It's very weird. Yeah, unless you had like a satellite, I think you had like three channels. Yeah, pretty much, and they're all BBC. And I don't even have cable anymore. So who the fuck am I to judge? You don't need that shit. You got Netflix. But somehow they packed those four channels with really good TV. So yeah, I mean, I liked it. Well, arguably their TV is just better than ours. They just have more quality shows. And just adorable people with adorable accents. I mean, Misfits was great. I love Poldark. I watched Blackadder. <laughs> like, that was it. But I fucking loved it. Rowan Atkinson. Yes! <laughs> Again, Rowan Atkinson. <laughs> and Hugh Laurie. 
Oh, really? Yeah. He okay. played a big fucking idiot, so it was delightful to watch him in house and be the complete opposite. I don't give two shits about Hugh Laurie. Well, Stephen like Fry, him. though. Love yes. Stephen Fry. Look, all of Blackadder is just amazing. <laughs> in the context of Blackadder, it's the best thing I've ever watched. Yes. Space being a close second. Oh, I don't know that one. <gasps> Simon Pegg? Oh, it's Simon so good. Simon Pegg? Okay, oh. I'll watch it. Yeah. Somewhere, Johnny's screaming. <laughs> Sorry, jo- Shout Sorry, out Johnny. to Johnny! <laughs> Sorry. Alrighty. So, things are coming up Joy Division now. Nah. Steady gigs, record deals, notoriety. Just, fuck yeah, we're gonna fucking make it. Mary Tyler Moore style. Throw your hat in the air. Banner day for Joy Division. But something was happening that no one could predict or really do much about. Let me just bring you back really quick to June 1977, when they were still performing under the name Warsaw and fighting tooth and nail against other bands to be noticed. Another thing to be understood about the punk scene, especially back then, is how ruthless it truly was. Bands were fighting both physically and socially to get to the top and be the next Sex Pistols. That's all anybody wanted was to fucking be the Sex Pistols. Which, Which, arguably... In in retrospect, no, you don't. No. No. At the time, I understand, but now, no. So one night when Warsaw was supposed to headline, the supporting act called Fast Breeder was having none of it. They were convinced that they should be headlining. Finally, it was decided Warsaw would close the show. So Fastbender was so pissed that they left the venue. And when they came back to perform, it was so late... People only stayed for them, and pretty much everybody left before Warsaw. So they were pissed. The dudes knew what they were fucking doing, and they knew that they were just fucking shutting them down. So they were all really angry. That makes me upset, because I see that happen at a lot of uh, Mike shows, and I feel really bad. Yeah. I always feel bad not staying until the end, because sometimes... Being the headliner is not all it's cracked up to be when it's a local show. Mm Mm-hmm. You think it's going to be awesome, but most of the people there are friends or relatives of the other bands. Right. Especially if you're a band from out of town. Mm -hmm. So if all of those bands go on before you and then you get on there, you're going to have less than half of the people that were in the audience for the bands before you. Right. And that sucks. I will tell you, as someone who grew up being in band and chorus and doing recitals and doing all this shit... I learned at a young age, you fucking stay. Yeah. Especially if you're a performer, you fucking stay Out through of the respect. whole show because you need to fucking respect who else is yeah. there. Punk scene didn't do that in the 70s. Yeah, no. And I, I, as uh, a punk mentality, I get it. Like, you, you don't give a fuck, but kind of give a fuck to your Just own community. Just give a little bit of a fuck. Just a slight fuck. That's all you gotta give. Yeah. Slight fuck. Yeah. And I mean, this didn't do anybody any favors. Who's heard of Fast Breeder? Oh, no one. This is that's such an right. English name. It is, though. Like, that's the polite name for something really bad. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but it's real bad. <laughs> like, well, just, figure it out. <laughs> well, like I said, they were pissed. Place was nearly empty. And an enraged Ian began to throw himself off the stage into tables Moved with a total erratic abandon, breaking glasses in his wake, like just shit was everywhere. And this would even itself out eventually and be a little less violent, but 
it would become Ian Curtis's signature for his performance style. If you watch videos of Joy Division a little bit later on and see him on the stage, Ian is doing this crazy, weird, erratic dance. He's moving around like it's jerky. It's just shaking almost. And it's very haunting. It's almost disturbing, especially because it really will turn out to be quite symbolic for Ian in his real life. I bet you he looks like a Pentecostal priest with a snake around his neck. You know what? I think he looks cooler than a Pentecostal (laughs) priest. Said it! He looks like a Quaker. But like, again, cooler. But it it is. It's a very... It's a cool Quaker. I'll, I'll try to post a couple videos of it. It's really interesting to watch. Because like I said, it's haunting. His, you can tell he's never getting enough sleep. He's very gaunt in the face. He's this skinny white guy just moving around in this weird way to this really melancholy music. Mm-hmm. And it's, I don't know, man. It, it's, something about it just sticks with me. Mm. So it's it's interesting. And like I said, this totally reflects what Ian's going through in real life. So in December 1978, getting back on track here, Mm -hmm. on their way home from their first gig in London, he began to just yell at his bandmates in the car. He stole Barney's sleeping bag. He tossed it on his head. He starts clawing at the doors. He's freaking out. So they pulled over. They laid him out on the side of the road and they had to take care to restrain him to the ground because Ian was having an epileptic seizure. Really? Yes. They brought him to the hospital, they gave him pills, but he was still suffering from fits anywhere from three to four times a week. Finally, the next month, he was officially diagnosed with epilepsy. Wow. And it was bad. That sounds really bad. Despite doctor's orders and his wife's pleas, Ian continued to drink and smoke, and with the popularity only increasing, Joy Division's schedule would reach a level of intensity that would get in the way of any regular schedule or proper night's sleep. Right. So these seizures are really fucking bad. Uh, are they triggered by lack of sleep? I think in general with epilepsy, you need to live a healthy lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Get sleep. Eat decent. You probably shouldn't drink. Definitely shouldn't do drugs. Especially if you're on medication for Lights it. do did affect him. That was definitely a thing. The Which, when you're on cruise, stage. Yeah. Well, the lane crews were always told, like, don't fucking turn on the strobes, man. Yeah. Um, of course. I'll get more into it later. But when it came time to record their first full LP, they had two choices. They had an offer from Stiff Records, who were offering them a multi-album deal and 70,000 pound advance. Wow. Yeah, that was Holy huge shit, for them. Holy shit, that's a lot of money. Or they could stick with Factory Records, where they were offered a 50-50 split of the profits and the label would pay for recording and manufacturing, but there was no advance. 50-50? Yeah. With no advance? But, which I don't know too much about mathematics of the music industry, but this book explained a little bit, which was really interesting. But some of you may understand how the music industry works, and that an advance is really just a garbage loan that you will have to pay back to the record company. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's 70,000 pounds. But it was going to have to be paid back and split between four dudes. And also, they weren't going to pay... They would have... The band was going to have to pay for the studio time that would have come out of the advance. Okay. So, slowly, that 70000 is looking a little less. Right. Also, it would have been a multi-record deal. 
So say they end up with an album that they fucking hate, but they got to work with them for another four or five records. Which is a story that happens with like every fucking band in history. Yeah, or the album tanks, they're still stuck there, but they they're still never going to do anything. Pump something out, or the record company will just basically drop them. Yeah, you know, and it wasn't even their fault, or force them to make some kind of album that they don't want to make. Right, and arguably getting a fifty-fifty split with a record company not a bad gig with the factory. They would have a lot more freedom to create their work, you know. Uh, factory's probably not going to be getting their hands too dirty because it's a little independent record label. Right. So, in the end, they end up going with Factory. Because just going with Stiff and also with their experience from RCA. Yeah, And then they'd have to go all... They're in Manchester. They'd have to go all the way to fucking London. Like, they just... They didn't want to deal with all the bullshit. The Yes, the $70,000 advance... £70,000 advance was tempting... But they didn't want to be slaves to a company. So they they were, ended up being happy with going with the factory. But the downside to this was that they all had to keep their day jobs. Yeah. And the whole band working all day means that the only times that they had available to record were weekend overnights. And again, the guys came in with material ready to go. So recording took just two nights. Well, that helps. Yeah. At least, like, they knew what they were getting into. They were fucking ready to go and arguably i mean they're a punk band the whole punk aesthetic is that everything is not supposed to be perfect right it's not supposed to sound totally produced and put through the ringer 500 times it's supposed to kind of sound like you recorded it over two overnights on a weekend exactly you're fucking just exhausted you know peter would spend all night working with stuff on a sunday night working on the record and then go into work and fall asleep at his desk and yeah. fall out of his chair you know <laughs> so as long as you have a job where you can do that that's fine and i mean in your in your early 20s who's not pulling bullshit like that i did i would go to work still drunk for lesser reasons for lesser reasons <laughs> they worked with producer martin hannett who is responsible for the post-punk sound that has become so synonymous with Joy Division. He decided to record each instrument individually. In fact, he recorded each part of the drum set individually. That's how clean he wanted each sound to come out. He also used a lot of techniques like echo, digital delay, and unique sound effects. He recorded Ian's vocals for insight down a telephone line to make it sound distant. So he used all these really creative ways to make them really stand out. With the band being so green to the process, they just went along with whatever Martin wanted them to do. Martin actually said they were a producer's dream because they had no idea what to do. So they just listened <laughs> to everything I said. Later on, as they would keep working with him, they weren't so keen to follow everything he did. But, you know, first time is nice. When all was said and done, Unknown Pleasures, their first album was met with mixed reviews within the band. Ian and Steve loved it, whereas Barney and Peter hated it. <laughs> they felt all the guts had been taken out, and now they sounded ambient and soft. Remember, they were idolizing bands like the Sex Pistols and the Buzzcocks, so they wanted that fast, dirty punk feel. And if you've listened to Joy Division, it doesn't sound like that. But... It sounds so... It's timeless. Joy Division is timeless. You yeah. can listen to that... Forever. But isn't that kind of the definition of new wave? 
Right, but they weren't going for New Wave at the right. time. But they were the, going, they were like, I want to be Sex Pistols. But at the same time, this sounds like it's kind of the invention of New Wave. Exactly. Martin Hennett is really very responsible for that. Yeah. And nowadays, all of them have turned around and said, nope, this is great. Martin did a wonderful job. We were stupid when we were kids. But again, you're dumb kids. You don't know. Hindsight is twenty twenty. And it's amazing what, you know, a little bit of growing up and a lot of success will do for your, uh, <laughs> right? your opinion. And a lot of like, hey, you guys kind of invented something here. Yeah. And, yeah. and again, like you can go back and listen to Joy Division and be like, oh, shit, like this is still this still works. Yeah. It's and still- I'm not saying like the Sex Pistols aren't still good or don't still work. It's just... I feel like Joy Division stands the test of time a little better. It's still relevant to in 2018. Ways, in some ways, I feel like Sex Pistols is like, you know, when someone puts on like the Rolling Stones, you're like, oh, I'm in a classic rock mood where you don't do that well, with Joy Division. Sex Pistols, honestly, now is kind of a novelty. Yeah. Um, They had a specific image. They had a uh, specific sound. and. It's, they've almost become a parody of themselves yeah. in a way, especially because of the way Johnny Rotten handled himself post-Sex Pistols. Well, and everything that happened with Sid Vicious. And everything that happened with Sid Vicious, they've become a novelty. And I don't know, it's almost like looking back on it, it's like they're almost manufactured yeah. In a way. They're just yeah, like... Not manufactured, but I know what you mean. It's like... Yeah. yeah. It's a package. It's an yeah. interesting... It's it's like a movie and a song and a book all in one. It's like a movie version of punk. Yeah. It's very... It's very far removed from what punk actually is. Yes. I think while they are so influential to music, especially in the punk scene and in the, even in the grunge scene and the rock scene and everything... It's not representative of punk. Yeah. Especially, in a way. especially because they gain so much notoriety and fame. Yeah. Which is the exact opposite of what you're supposed to do if you're a punk band. Right. So they they're they're kind of a parody and they're kind of just Yeah, it's a novelty of, of the punk yeah. scene. And I don't think that's their fault. I mean, the media definitely covered them in a certain way. And I think once... They definitely got a certain kind of attention because I think when they started out, like, we don't give a fuck and we're just going to fight, that was just them being them. Yeah. But I think once uh, the whole thing with uh, Sid and Nancy happened and then um, afterwards, after they broke up, Johnny Rotten just became, like, a ridiculous fucking clown. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> like a David Lee Roth? Uh, no, like an actual clown. He looked like an actual clown. Like a John Wayne Gacy. Yeah, he looked like an no, English like... John Wayne Gacy with terrible teeth. Oh my. And uh, he's just, <laughs> I mean, they really dragged their own legacy through, you know, the mud. Yeah, if they just left it alone. If he had just left it the fuck alone and didn't try to be so in everybody's faces afterwards. Hmm. I get it. You you need money and you need to support yourself. But come on, Johnny Rotten. See, stop it. I don't know a ton about Johnny Rotten, so I'll you be do. interested to learn about him someday. someday. Someday we'll talk. We'll about get him, there. We'll Jesus, get to you, Jesus Johnny Christ, Rotten. Johnny Rotten. Shut the fuck up. Seriously, just sit down. Just Johnny stop Rotten. it. Just stop it. So Barney came up again with the cover art after looking through an encyclopedia of astronomy. It is based on an image of radio waves from a Pulsar CP 1919. Sure. Yup. 
Sounds good. That's the story. I'm sticking <laughs> to it. They pressed 10,000 copies originally, and they sold through them pretty quickly. That's so pretty quick, nice. Probably quicker than the first thing. The album was a success and helped push the label into becoming a thriving business. Mm-hmm. So while Factory was still independent, doing a lot better now because they got somebody like Joy Division in their belt. Yeah. Of course, from here, they toured in order to promote the album. And I'm going to say, just throw it out there right now. They toured a fuck. They did a ton of gigs. They did a lot of fucking shows. They did singles. They did a lot of work. And I'm not going to cover all of it in this because that would just be an entire five episodes. Honestly, it's kind of boring. Yeah. Well, they were landing consistent gigs and even a British tour with the Buzzcocks, like I had mentioned earlier. Good for them. Good for them. This meant that they could finally quit their jobs. Out of all the guys, this helped Ian out the most as he just had a baby daughter, Natalie. This was a surprise to the guys because they didn't even know that Debbie was pregnant. What? Yeah. Apparently, the only reason they found out that Ian was even a father was because he fainted during the pregnancy. He either fainted or had a fit. He tells one story, Debbie tells another. Either way, he collapsed during her giving birth. Uh And he ended up in the hospital. And they were like, we were in hospital. What the fuck happened? Like, oh, he had a daughter. What? I'm surprised he wasn't just like, yeah, I had an episode. Yeah, it's just, he just, something that Peter brings up a lot in the book is that Ian shows himself differently to different people. To the band, he was one guy. To Debbie, he's another. To other people that he'll meet later down the line, he's a totally third person. Ian is a people pleaser, and people pleasers have a tendency to be able to wear different masks. So one person will be like, well, Ian said this, and then they'll be like, no fucking way, he didn't say that. Everybody has a contradictory story about Ian because Ian was a contradictory guy. But he believed business was business and family was family. And he never talked about his family with the the boys. And maybe he never talked about the band with Debbie. Which I I can understand. But at the same time, it's kind of sad. Because everybody I've... I've, Humble brag, second. I know... No, just brag. I know a lot of people who are musicians who are actively in bands and... They always treat their bandmates like friends. Yeah. Even if they're not super close and they only really hang out with each other during rehearsal and like um, shows and stuff like that, they're still friends. Yeah. You're, you're, it's a different kind of relationship. It is a different kind. Close. Yeah. It's a different kind of relationship. And, you know, some are closer than others, but even ones that are not that close, you still tell them shit. Like right. important stuff. Like, well, I'm going to have a baby. Yeah, you can tell them that. Because kind of, babies kind of affect bands. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. I mean, would you think, Ian, having a baby wasn't going to affect the band? Okay. Yeah. Like, for instance, Mike is in a band. Mm-hmm. Their lead singer got married. We went to the wedding. And then shortly after that, they had a baby. And that and guess affects what? Affects the band. It affects the band. Huh. And guess what? What? He told the band he was having a baby. Interesting. Imagine that. That's weird. Because you tell your bandmates. I didn't think you did that. About milestones in your life. It's common courtesy. It's common courtesy. Fuck. <laughs> well, at this point, the seizures only have increased. They were beginning to happen on stage during performances. Oh. Yeah. The lighting crew were giving strict orders not to use strobe lights, but 
Ian's condition got so bad that sometimes the drums would set him off. Wow. Yeah. They had to stop a lot of performances due to his epileptic fits. I mean, I guess, like, rhythmic patterns are something that would mm-hmm. really just trip you up. Right. And again, he's he's taking medication, but other than that, he's really not doing much to treat it. Yeah. So he's, ooh, he's, not, he's not doing great. So I can only imagine the condition gets worse without treating it. And at this point, the guys were just getting used to having to bring him down from his seizures. They got used to having to restrain him and hold his tongue so he didn't swallow it. Yeah. The first couple times it happened on stage, it was scary. But after a bit, they almost seemed to be like, okay, well, now this is how we do it. This is how we handle it. Yeah, you kind of uh, get the pattern down. Yeah. We have to do. Yeah, they just kind of knew. Again, not living the healthiest lifestyle. Not only that, but... They're reaching their goal of becoming a proper band. Peter mentions several times in the book recounting some of these stories is hard because there's a lot of times where he sees that they could have put a pin in their music and just let Ian try to get himself right. But out of all of them, Ian was the least likely to do that. I mean, think about a time in your life where your hard work was paying off and did you lay off the gas or did you sacrifice what you needed to make it happen? No one in this situation had any idea what would happen as they continued down this path because all they could see was we're getting to where we want to go. Yeah. And I can't even argue with that. I mean, there's been tons of times for, again, for lesser things that I sacrificed sleep or I sacrificed my own health because I had a goal and I wanted to reach it. I mean, even with this podcast, it's like some days I just don't sleep. It's fine. I edit the episode. I did it with roller derby. Sometimes I just, I don't take good care of myself because I'm like, but I want this. So fuck it. Especially if there's a group of other people who are also doing the same thing that you're doing and and are relying on you you to be able to do it. So Ian saw it as, well, they're counting on me. And the rest of the band saw it as, well, Ian said he's fine. So we're just going to keep going. Peter even says, he's like, right. I should have just called this book. Like, he said he was fine, so we just carried on. Because <laughs> that's what they did every but time. That's, uh, that's also like... This is a... Honestly, also Peter Hook's book. Peter Hook's book. Is a total, you know, just warning sign of this is not how you should handle a friend. See the red flags. In a bad situation. Yeah. See the red flags. Like, don't do... This is the foreboding tale yeah don't do this so while on tour in brussels ian met anique honore i think that's how you say it she's belgian so i don't know okay anique honore i don't know they're kind of french and belgian right i believe that there is uh, a lot of french influence but they mostly speak uh, belgian belgish dutch german so she was a belgian yeah. journalist and promoter I feel stupid for not knowing, but I, bu- I believe it's German. I believe they speak German in Belgium. Maybe. Well, in, in the Netherlands, they speak Dutch. Irregardless. So Ian meets Anique. Anik? I think it's Anique. That just sounds prettier. So How is it spelled? It. A-N-N-I-K. Anik. Anik? I, I think it's Anik. I think Anik's prettier, but all right. Sorry, Anik. I think it's Anik. <laughs> I'm changing the name. So... Ian and Anik would eventually come to have an affair of sorts. However, this was never a physical one due to Ian's epilepsy medication basically making him impotent. Okay. So they could never, you know, seal the deal, as it were. But he just had a baby? 
This was a, a little down the line. Okay. Debbie got pregnant probably around the time that Ian started to have his seizures. Okay. This this is a pretty fucking... So it progressed pretty quickly. Like, his first seizure was in 77 or 70... Yeah, at the end of 77. And it was like... seven Or maybe even 78. And then it was like in seven... Yes, okay. It was seven, end of 78. He had his first seizure that they had seen. And like, we're in 79 now. Okay. Like, this shit's fucking escalating okay very quickly so is he impotent because of the epilepsy or because of the medication I he's taking i believe it was the medication okay yeah so it was the medication was kind of stunting if only they lot. had viagra at that time i know he would have gotten it for free because he's a white man <laughs> come for me health insurance covers that but not all birth control mm. hmm Ian and his wife, Debbie, were already on the outskirts of their marriage. He was constantly on tour, leaving her home alone with Natalie. And despite the band slowly gaining success, they were still pretty much broke. So needless to say, fights were common between the two of them and were only made worse when she found out about Annick. Hmm. Mm. So were they just like hanging out a whole lot and like... He pretty much... It, Emotionally? Like, yeah. I mean, maybe making out. Okay. I mean, you could... I mean, just because your dick can't get up doesn't I mean guess you can't like, make out. I guess like third base. Yeah, they could probably get to third. Yeah. I mean, he could probably get her off. Yeah. So that's... Just, okay, I third base. Nobody really... I mean, Anik probably knows, but nobody else is... Peter never went into that in his book. I'm sure he did not. He was never like, so this is how he got to third base with his limp dick. <laughs> Uh, That'll be the name of my memoirs. Third base with a limp, limp dick. dick. <laughs> like, it sounds like something Lars Ulrich would say. Oh, Lars. Oh, Lars. Oh, Lars. So by 1980, it was time to work on their next album. In a way, they viewed it as a kind of break from the hectic touring schedule. Kind of was. Mm-hmm. They still worked with Martin, but this time they went to Britannia Row Studios, which was owned by Pink Floyd. It's in London, so they would work with state-of-the-art equipment. The process went similar to the first album. Everyone came in, did their parts, and Martin would mix it all up, give it that clean and timeless feel. But as far as the relationship between the guys, that wasn't going quite as smoothly. Annick made herself a home in Ian's London flat, and he began to spend his time with her and other like-minded artsy types, such as the likes of Genesis P. Orridge of... Throbbing Gristle. Wait, his name was Genesis? Their name was Genesis P. Orridge. Okay. P-Orridge. I started to look them up. I started to look them up on Wikipedia. They're actually fascinating and I kind of want to learn more about them. They're also a known occultist. They were really into like chaos magic and things like that. (laughs) So I'm like, I want to know who you are. And somebody might know who Genesis Peorage is, in in which case let me know, because I had never heard of them before. All right. So, but very, I mean, come on, from the name of what I've just told you, that's who Ian started hanging out with in addition to Anik. As soon as you said Genesis, I assume you meant he started hanging out with Phil Collins. And I was like, yes. No, Peter Gabriel. And Peter Gabriel. Oh my God. If only. If only. That's who he should start hanging out with, is Peter Gabriel. <laughs> well, they're all these artsy types, and they would just go to galleries, they would discuss philosophy. He, you know, got a little, you know, high-cultured, I suppose you all could right. say. 
The boys in the band, though, felt like he was putting on airs and acting better than them. So what do all dudes do in their early 20s to their mates, especially when they think they're acting like prats? They take the absolute piss out of them. (laughs) They would play so many tricks on Ian and Anik, and they would get so upset. At one point, Ian supposedly wrote a note to Rob saying he was unhappy with the album because of the lot, quote, sneaky japing tossers. <laughs> but also he apparently wrote a note to Annick saying he enjoyed the album. And this is another great example of how Ian was. Someone that would act in a completely different way depending on who he was around. It was just that never-ending quest to please everyone and just putting on a different mask. That drives me nuts. Yeah, Ian was a hard guy to read. Yeah, I don't think I would be able to deal with him. Well, the, once he got with Anik, apparently it was very hard for the band to deal with him as well. They were great in the studio. As long as they were working on music, everything was fine. Yeah, but well, that socially, was... socially... That was the common thing that they all had that they could... Yeah. And that was the creative outlet that they all used, and they were all on the same wavelength that way. When it came to being in social situation... Not yeah. so much. Well, and I, like you said, had brought up earlier, which I thought was interesting, it's just that, you know, your band members are close to, you know, you treat them like friends, you yeah. treat them like family. And Ian definitely compartmentalized every group of people he was with into different little containers. Right. So it was interesting that he really didn't seem to go by that. I mean, not it's not to downplay and say like, oh, people weren't didn't mean as much to him. I just mean like... That's exhausting. It also seems like he um, he didn't think that any of his different groups of um, his different social circles would communicate. Right. But I've, I've definitely known people like him. Yeah. And they definitely think that, oh, well, I can be this way with this group and I can be this way with this group. And it's fine because I doubt they'll ever... Like intermingle, right? But even in big cities, it's small social yeah. circles, and everybody is going to know everybody, and everybody is going to talk. They're going to figure out once in a while that you said one thing to one person and said a completely different thing to the other person, and which they did. And even if you have zero malicious intent behind it, you are going to come off two faced, yeah, and that's not good, right? You're not even trying to, but yeah, you will come across. That's and it's and everyone's overly complicated. Yeah, and everyone's going to look at you like, "Well, why the fuck did you say this to this person and this to the other person?" Yeah. It, it's going to yeah. be a fucking mess. You're confusing everybody. You can't do that. Whereas arguably, I do the opposite thing, where I'm like, "Everyone can be friends. I'm going to have all my <laughs> friends hang out." And they're like, "We all fucking hate each other." And I'm like, "Nope. Shit. This, this wrong." <laughs> <laughs> trying counts. <laughs> Well, I guess. (laughs) Soon their second album, Closer, was being prepped for release. When it came to selecting artwork, they were given a series of photos of Crips in Genoa's Saglieno Cemetery. It's Italy, whatever. Taken by Bernard Pierre Wolf. They went with one from the Appiani family tomb. And later, they would feel that this artwork is a bit too on the nose for their liking. Especially once they finally listen to Ian's lyrics. But I'll get to that. My mom's family is from Genoa. Oh, look at that. Fun fact about Ashley. 
You're Italian. Yeah, quarter Italian, but yes, Italian. Yeah. You wouldn't know it. Maybe? Maybe. I don't know. Hello. I really have no idea. More Italian than me. Yeah, you're pretty not Italian. (laughs) (laughs) You're pretty much not Italian. What what nationalities are you, Maggie? Not Italian. Not Italian. There you go. (laughs) After they finished recording, Joy Division stayed in London a little longer and did a few gigs around the area. One night at the beginning of April, Ian had not one but two seizures. At one point... In one night? In one night. Oh, fuck. One point he was dancing around and it turned into a fit. After taking some time to recover, he insisted to go back out on stage. No, you and don't do that. the band was like, no. And he's like, no, I'm going to do it. And they're like, fine. And of course, soon into the next set, he had another <laughs> You don't seizure. know me. I'm dancing. They're like, you are until you have a seizure. I'm sorry. God damn it. I just want to dance. He did, he did though. Arguably, <laughs> Ian that just so, wanted to dance. I'm so sorry. <laughs> we are very sorry. On April 6, 1980... Ian attempted to overdose on his phenobarbital, which was his epileptic seizure medicine. He soon after had second thoughts, fearing that instead of dying, he would just end up with brain or liver damage. So he let Debbie know what happened, and she brought him right to the hospital. At this point, Debbie was serving Ian with divorce papers, and as far as she was concerned, the marriage was over. While Ian felt guilty about this, he just couldn't stop himself from being with Anique. And declaring his love for her. I know it's Anik, but Anik sounds so much prettier. <laughs> so he was still living with Debbie, even though he was emotionally with Anik? <sighs> yes and no. They were traveling so much that how much time was he really spending at home? Okay. Not a ton. But when he was at home, it was basically a huge fight. Because she said, you need to stop seeing Anik. And he was like, no. So. Cool. She was like, so we getting divorced. Yeah. Pretty much. Therefore, Tony decided it would be best for Ian to stay with him and his wife, Lindsay Reed, to ease marital tensions and really let Ian get some rest. Mm-hmm. Except not. On April 8th, the band still performed a planned gig, except this time they would have Alan Hempsall stand in for Ian, except on two songs when Ian came up and sang them. They just soldiered on for a few more gigs, but by the end of April, they did pull nearly all of the ones that they had coming up finally they wanted to give ian a break and also they were finally booked to do an american tour and needed to prep oh yeah so you can't just throw them into that no so they needed some time to get ready for this again let this be a lesson of what not to do to your friends after they try to kill themselves and are having constant epileptic seizures. Maybe instead be like, let's take it easy. Let's take a break. Do you want to go see a movie? Do you want to eat some ice cream? Like, do you want to just chill and just hang out? Yeah. Like, Spend I time get, with your kid? I get it. Avoidance is a thing. But, like, stop it. Before they were to be on their way to the States, though, they filmed the music video for Love Will Tear Us Apart. Everyone thought the idea of miming your music while recording was cheesy, so instead they hired a PA and a mixing desk to record them playing while filming so it would be a live performance. Okay. So that was nice. The beginning of May saw a few more gigs and a few more recording sessions, not quite as heavy as usual, but just a little bit. Their flight to America was scheduled for May 19th. Here we go again. Some claim that Ian wasn't at all interested in going to America, but according to Peter, he was just as jazzed as the rest of the band. 
This was where some of his idols like Iggy Pop and Lou Reed were from. This was where they were going to reach a new level of success. Right. But other people say, oh, he's worried about his fits and like that the Americans are going to judge him and make fun of him for it. Or, oh, he's scared to fly. So this and that. He would tell everybody something different. Yeah. So who knows how he really felt. At this point, Ian was staying with his parents. But after receiving a letter about his divorce, he decided to go see Debbie and Natalie to say goodbye before leaving the country for the tour. Natalie was with her grandparents, but Debbie was there, so they discussed the future of their relationship. Ian got very worked up as he asked her to drop the divorce. And she worried that he might have a seizure because he was getting so upset, so she offered for him to stay the night. Ian eventually calms down, and he asks her to leave the house and not come back until after 10 a.m., because that's when he was hopping on the train to Manchester. Mm -hmm. Basically said, you know what, like, I just need to do my own thing. You go stay somewhere else. I'll stay here and it'll be fine. Debbie agreed and didn't return until 1130 a.m. the next morning where she found Ian kneeling on the floor of the kitchen, rope around his neck and the other end tied to the clothes rack, dead by hanging. According to the records, after Debbie left, Ian drank coffee and spirits, listened to Iggy Pops the Idiot and wrote a long letter to his wife before taking his own life. Wow. Yeah. That's kind of, I guess, there's always some kind of signs and signals that somebody is suicidal. Obviously, his difficulty with his epilepsy is kind of uh, a red flag. Oh, yeah. Like, a bunch of red flags. And the fact that he's not at all dealing with it in a healthy manner. And so he's having these fits now twice a night. Right. But... It, I I kind of wondered, did he have depression to go along with the epilepsy? I mean, he definitely did. He I mean, must he, have. He attempted his life to take his life before this. Right. And, I mean, maybe it's because it was the late 70s, early 80s, and people just didn't nobody's, view it the same way. Yeah, nobody's really looking for signs. And or also, no one's taking... I don't want to say they didn't take it as seriously, but they... You know, I'm going to throw it out there, especially in British culture, stiff upper lip, like, oh, you're sad, we'll get over it. Yeah. And uh, depression wasn't something that everybody talked about. Mm -mm. It was still the, um, just mental health issues in general were just not something you were supposed to talk about. Um, If if you had them, then you were just supposed to deal with them. And if you went to therapy, then you must have been fucking bonkers. Exactly. And- you know, so that wouldn't have even been on the table for Ian to go to therapy. Right, because immediately, if anybody found out he was going to therapy, they would immediately be like, well, you're fucking crazy and you need yeah. to be in a mental institution and whatever. Yeah. Um, it wasn't something that was really talked about. No. And so, again, stiff upper lip and the fact that depression's not really talked about back then. Everybody soldiers on, ignores... I mean, holy shit. When I read that Ian told her, like, oh, go leave and come back in the morning, I was like, that's like, that's an on fire flag. That is the red flag that is burning up in flames. You say, like, oh, no, I'll sleep on the couch. That is a fucking lighthouse of a signal. (laughs) Right? Like, or, like, I'll sleep in the car or, like, I don't even fucking know. Like, I'd be like, I'm not leaving. Yeah. The fact that you asked me to leave makes me not want to leave. Right. But again, 1980, you're not thinking that. Right. You're not thinking he's going to... Even with the previous attempt, because that just wasn't the time. Right. And honestly, reading the book, I 
my heart breaks for Peter a lot because he really reflects so much on all the times that they could have helped him. Yeah. But it they're young 20s. It's the 80s, the 70s. It's Britain. It, you just, that wasn't what was done. And, like, I feel bad to see him beat himself up about it because it's like, yeah, now you see you, see you could have done something, but back then you didn't. Right. And you wouldn't. It, it was so not commonplace. But there's a lot of people from our parents' generation that had the same kind of mental health issues. Mm-hmm. And a lot of uh, their friends and family members that are still surviving feel the same way because these days you talk about things like that. Right. Back then you didn't. And you were not told or taught to look at the symptoms and right. look at all those red flags. So, yeah, it's, 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 it made me really sad to read this chapter in the book. And, you know, it, it always is. It's such a fucking, it's a waste. It's a tragedy. It fucking sucks to read about it. And then it just, it also doubly sucks to read like the band's reaction. You know, it's like Peter basically got a phone call. I'm like, Oh, Hey, your bandmate's dead. Can you tell your manager when you see him? Who who called him? I it was the police, I believe. Ugh. And they were I mean, they were a little more tactful than that, but not I'm not exaggerating I mean, too much. The and police then, you know, are not taught to be tactful when it comes to this stuff because they have I, to do it every fucking day. Yeah, but still it sucks to read about it and just be like, wow, you guys were just starting to take off. Yeah. And again, it's it's so funny, not like funny, haha, but it's just so funny to read it. This happened over 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I was sad. Like, I lost someone because I'm like, I didn't know. I didn't know the story. Mm-hmm. You know, episodes like this is what makes me really appreciate what we do. Not just for you lovely fans out there, but like for us. Because I was like, I didn't fucking know any of this about Joy Division. Yeah. And this is like... This is a fucking story. Yeah. It's amazing. To, and it's and again, it's so quick. Everything happened so fucking quick with them. This was only within the span of three years. Yeah. I mean, I think it was around 76 they got together and he mm-hmm. was dead by 1980. Mm-hmm. So three to four years. That's a lot to pack into less than four years. Yeah. No, you know, in some ways it's like you look at it and you're like, no wonder this kind of went the way it did. Yeah. Well... In June 1980, the single Love Will Tear Us Apart was released and hit number 13 on the UK single chart. That is so fucking bittersweet. It really is. Oh, that's horrible. The following month, their album Closer was finally released and reached number six on the UK albums chart. Joy Division saw more success after it was over than while it was active. Because it really was active for like three and a half, four years. That's a kick in the pants. Fucking kick in the pants. (laughs) It is. It's sad. It sucks. Like... Like, and you wonder, too, if Ian was able to see any of his success, would would that have stopped him? I think that would have made it worse. Probably. I think it would have made it infinitely worse. Do you think he's like a Kurt Cobain type who just wouldn't have been able to handle the I don't think the he, pressures oh, of it? Yeah, he would not have been able to handle the pressure of fame and the pressure of even recording another album. Having to be as good as the last yeah and also he wouldn't have physically or mentally been able to handle it i don't think he would have physically been able to handle doing more shows with his epilepsy if he didn't get a handle on it and at that point when you're in your 20s 
and you're just finding a lot of success, that's when your mental health and your physical health completely go down the shitter. Uh, and if it, as if it wasn't already. Yeah. He, he would have completely, like, let himself completely go. And if it didn't happen then, it would have, if this didn't happen then, he would have tried Again. at least two more times yeah. before he actually succeeded yeah. in suicide. It's, yeah. It, it, I'm no expert. <laughs> but at the same I've, time. I've dealt with it a lot, but I'm no expert. But I mean, that's... But at the same time, you know, it, it. It, depression doesn't go away. Yeah, depression doesn't go away. And also, there is a really big, very, very large percentage of people who attempt suicide who will attempt again, again. and succeed. Yeah. So if he he tried it once, he didn't succeed. He had second thoughts, which is very common. Mm-hmm. But he tried again and he succeeded. And that... That happens a lot with people with right. depression, mental illness that are completely unchecked, and yeah, and it always it it happens. And then actually, some argue that that's why he hung himself this time because taking pills, he had a chance to have second thoughts. Mm-hmm. Hanging himself, you don't really get a second thought. Rarely do you. Yeah, it's not it's not nearly as quick. Or yeah, I, mean, it's, I mean, it's so much quicker that it's you don't have nearly as much time. To, yeah. like, sit on it for 15 minutes and be like, you know what? Actually, I don't want to die. Yeah. And you don't get that with a hanging. This sounds you horrible. You have a few minutes. This sounds horrible. But if it's done right, you don't have a second chance. Exactly. And that's, I think, what probably Ian was going for, unfortunately. And I mean... And it's it sounds stupid, but it's less awful than shooting yourself. Ugh. You know what I mean? If you mess up shooting yourself, <laughs> it's bad. Were you not here for the Judas Priest episode? <laughs> it's, bad. it's bad. It's very bad. It's awful. But with all of this, you know, if you're feeling like you need to end it, you don't call for help. And if, and even more important, I think, in this episode is if you see even a pink flag from a friend or a family member... Just even, do the littlest bit of outreach. Even if all you're doing is, like, just checking in and saying, are you okay? Let them know you're there. Let them little, know. If it's a little half-masked. Yeah. But good things came out of this, right? Well. Kind of? Yeah. I mean, all right. So, after Ian's death, the boys knew Joy Division would not go on. They made a pact that if anyone were to leave the band for whatever reason, that was it. No more Joy Division. Mm-hmm. It was the four of them and that's it. But that didn't mean they were to stop making music. Ian had left them a gift with two songs, Ceremony and In a Lonely Place. A few days after the funeral, Peter, Barney, and Steve got together and began to work on these songs. They played through the riffs and took turns singing. And not long after, they would have New Order's debut single ready to go. But that's another band with another story for another time. But New Order... It's is Joy, Joy Division, Division, which we which didn't I know. know that. I didn't know. That's a bunch of a fucking noob I am. Yeah. I was like, oh, New Order's Joy Division. <laughs> and then there was like a slight period where we were discussing this and we we're like, wait, is Joy Division New Order or is New Order Joy oh, Division? New Order's definitely Joy but Division. New Order, New Order is definitely Joy Division. Yes. Got it. Right. 
Joy Division first. Yes. New then Order New Order. second. And it's not New World Order. It's just New Order. Very different. <laughs> yeah, they really couldn't really get rid of the controversial names, could they? Yeah. But also, the really sad thing is that whenever I think of New Order, I automatically think of Orgy. Oh, Blue And Monday. their cover of Blue Monday. Because that's how the first time I ever ever heard it was. Me too. Because we're kids. Kids. We grew up in the in the beginning of the 2000s. We can't help it. Yes, yeah, that's, that's kind of just what happens. But I mean, we learn. Obviously, we're still learning. I, I can still jam out to Orgy's version. Yeah. Every once good. in a while, it's an, it's a fun novelty song to listen to. So. Yeah, but when you're at 80s night, that Blue Monday by New Order. The original. The OG? Yes. That shit's the tits. And I mean, they have Bizarre Love Triangle. Yes. Um. Anyway. I just honestly, like, <sighs> this drained me a bit. Because I just, I don't know, by the time I got to, I had to rush reading it, which always sucks. Yeah. Because I don't give myself enough time to research. Neither do I. Because there's not enough time in the world for me to... Like Joy Division, it's hard to have a full-time job and then have a podcast. And the only time we get to work on it is late nights. This is like our band. It is. Isn't that nice? It is nice. (laughs) I like it. I don't know how to play an instrument, so this is my band. You, again, maracas. (laughs) They're sexy. And the ukulele. We got it. Got it. I'll play the bass and the piano at the same time. (laughs) You do that. I'm gonna show yourself some multi-talented levels. <laughs> anyway. anyway. I think that's that's a good place to put a little bow on it for now. Yeah, let's you know, get out of this hot-ass room. Yeah. Eventually, I'm sure we'll either do a bonus and or full episode on New Order, so calm your tits. We'll get there. But for now, why don't you follow us on social media? <laughs> like... Facebook and Instagram at Rock Candy Podcast or Twitter at Rock Candy Pod. And our website is www.rockcandypodcast.com. And you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, and just, you know, any kind of podcatcher. We're around. Drop us a review if you want. Not on Spotify yet, but. Yo, everybody's getting on Spotify except us. We're trying, though. Yeah, I saw. I saw some people we follow on Instagram get on Spotify. Good for you. Good for you. Hey, everybody who's gotten on Spotify these past two weeks, good for you. Proud of you. Represent. Good form. Good form. Good form. Hell yeah. Someday we'll make it. We'll get there. Someday we'll have our Mary Tyler (laughs) Moore moment. Someday. We're gonna make it after all. On Spotify. Hell yeah. That's gonna be it. All right. And with that, party on, Ashley. Party on, Maggie. We're leaving. Party on, you crazy kids out there. Get the fuck out of here. Stay the fuck out of Troy. Hey, stay the fuck out of Troy.